Well, good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you. Why don't you take your Bible and turn to John chapter 19. Thank you for those kind words of introduction, Clint. Um, I don't know about the rugby team. That's new to me. Um, but I have heard some rugby stories, so good to hear that uh, Pastor Brian and Pastor Trevor are playing in the same team. It's fantastic. It really has been a joy to be with you this weekend. Um, had a lovely opportunity last night to walk through the narrative of Matthew 26 from beginning to end. You don't get that opportunity very often to listen to how the story is laid out for Matthew. And it's our goal over the weekend to walk this journey of Easter weekend so many thousand years ago, starting with that Monday Thursday and all the events of that evening, moving on to Friday morning, which we will look at now, and then, of course, anticipating resurrection, which happened on Sunday. And so the text that I'd like to, to really hone in on is a, is a short little passage from John chapter 19. And I'd like to read verses 28 to 30 for you. After this, John says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for worship this morning to think of these words, it is finished, over and over again. In our songs, Lord, we've considered what they mean for us and the job that is done on our behalf, so that we might live. And Lord, as we try our very best this morning to understand the the depth of the meaning of these words that you cried from the cross, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would respond and respond well, that we would love you, that we would commit our lives to serve you, that we commit um, our families to you, And Lord, we would obviously come in a matter of confession if there be sin in our lives. Lord, the result being that we would be made holy and that we would be used of you. Lord, my prayer is that for those that maybe do not know you personally, maybe think they know you, that this morning would be an opportunity for them to come to know you personally. Those that have walked a long journey with you, perhaps, I pray that today would be a day of transformation, rededication, commitment, appreciation of yourself, Lord, worship, and of course we pray that your name would be exalted this Easter. Amen. Matt Papa wrote a worship song a little while ago. He wrote these words, it is finished, it is finished, it is done. To the world salvation comes, we would say in common language, rescue comes to the world. Praise the Lord, we are alive. Hell was silenced when you cried, it is finished. These words imply a whole lot of things for the Christian. That Jesus' task was necessary because of our sin, that we are in need of rescue Jesus bringing salvation. 
that we were dead, but now we are made alive in Jesus. That hell was looming for us, but Jesus won the victory for us. It is true that we are definitely a needy people. Amen? We are so desperately needy of a Savior and of a Lord. The Bible says very clearly that we were born guilty. This is part of our need. That we are born separated from God. And may I just add that is all that is good. We are separated from all that is good. That we are born enemies of the Lord. We can read about these details in various books of Scripture. That we are enslaved. Now, now many people don't believe what the Bible says. But the Bible makes it plain that we, in our first birth, before we were born again, are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to Satan. We are enslaved to death. And we see the effects of that because none of us are going to avoid a grave one day. Today we must thank the Lord, I believe, from the bottom of our hearts on this Good Friday morning because he has provided a solution for our need. And may I summarize that solution in four words? Jesus in my place. Instead of guilt now, we can now be innocent. Instead of separation, we can be reconciled. Instead of being God's enemy, the Bible now speaks of the opportunity for individuals to be made God's children. That's a big promotion. Instead of being enslaved to sin and death and Satan, we can now be absolutely free. Now, the question I have, and I'm sure you have in your mind, is how? How can we make that radical transition from guilt, separation, enmity, and enslavement? What has been made possible in history to promote us to innocence, reconciliation, to be the children of God, and to be absolutely redeemed or free? And the answer is all what Jesus did on this day so many thousand years ago. So take a pen and write down a few little headings so that you can remember the work of our Lord. Firstly, the course is run. The course is run. Look at the passage with me. The passage starts, verse 28, after this. Now, when, when the Bible has these kinds of words, I always ask myself the question, well, what is this? Um, what has just happened that is now introducing something new? And so if you page back in your Bible, you'll see some of this context. The events preceding John 19. Jesus came, let me go right to the beginning. He came from heaven and he came to earth. He was born. He lived a perfect life. Can I say this? Unlike ours. Let me make it very like, uh, personal for you. Unlike yours. We don't like to think this way. We like to think that our life is pretty good. But the Bible explains that Jesus' life was radically different to ours. And if his was perfect, then ours is very much not perfect. He ministered, adding to the overwhelming evidence that he was God in the flesh. Would you agree? Going through the Gospels, you'll become convinced very quickly of the fact that Jesus was fully God in the flesh. And the world hated him. Now, I've always asked the question of our world because I study society as much as I study the Word of God. That's what preachers ought to be doing. They should be studying the context the, the context in which they would preach as much to, so as to make the Bible relevant. And so in studying our world as a pastor, I've noted that people, the world, hate Jesus. And I think many preachers have said through the years that if Jesus was alive today, they would, you know, people would still be, the masses would still be shouting, crucify him, to explain this very fact. Why is it that the world hates Jesus? Well, this is why Jesus hates sin. 
Jesus can't tolerate sin, and the world loves sin. If you think of your testimony this morning, I'm sure you'll come to that conclusion. There was a time in your life where you too cuddled up to sin. You gave sin a big fat, a big fat hug, and you nurtured sin, and you loved sin because sin promised certain pleasures and spin-offs for you. And if the world loves sin and Jesus hates sin, of course the reaction of the world to Jesus will be one of hatred. Well, the story goes on in your Bible, all this is prior to John 19, that Jesus went to unjust trial, and he lost that trial. He was punished because of, you know, the allegations made of him. And John 19 is actually the place where we find the details of this punishment. It includes flogging. That's for you to study. Flogging of his body involved, involved thorns in a robe where, as I understand it, they took a robe in a mocking kind of way, put the robe on Jesus to say, well, if you claim to be king, let's see you be king, Jesus. Act out this role for us. They put a crown of thorns on his head. said, now, Jesus, now you look like a real king. They pressed this thorn into his brow and the blood began to flow. This punishment involved fists. Read about it. It involved spit. And the masses screamed for his death. They took him out of town and they crucified him. And let me just remind you of what that meant. The cross was not as pretty as the one behind me, but they took his body and they literally nailed his body to pieces of wood and elevated his body so everyone could gawk and scorn and laugh and ridicule him on this day. And in verse 28, when I read the words after this, that's where we find Jesus. He's hanging on the cross. And church family, I want to say, this is not the scene of victory at all. We, we like to glamorize the cross today, but this scene is nothing of victory. But, but, we read on. And look at your Bible. Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Jesus was fully conscious. Look at the Bible there. He knew, he knew, knowing all that was finished. He was aware of what was going on. He was in control, not the crowds. He was in control, not the authorities. This was the will of God that he die. And in the middle of the, like I said last night, the greatest evil the world has ever seen, God is in control. Amen? In the middle of the greatest evil the world has ever seen, God is in control. A perfect man being punished to death kind of evil, in the middle of that, God is in control. This was God's plan to save humanity from sin. This was not an accident, as some would try to promote. This was not an example, or may I say merely an example for us to follow, because some have said Jesus is just like others that have gone before, um, a good model to emulate in your life. You want to be good? Go ahead and copy Jesus. No, this was not merely an example for us to follow. This was not simply a unjust murder, as others have tried to claim. Jesus had to die for us to live. Jesus had to die for us to live. This was God's plan. If God did not have a plan, we as humanity would have no hope whatsoever. What is the implication for us then, Pastor? What would, what would we you know, conclude in terms of our implementation of what already has been applied? God's control and our benefit from it. Well, if you are surrendered to the will of God, listen to me carefully. If you are surrendered to the will of God, God is in control of your life. That's the implementation 
of the scripture. If you are surrendered to the will of God, then God is in control of your life. And may I add to this, even when trauma strikes. And we've, we've had a little bit of a, a journey of trauma, haven't we? Through, through COVID and warfare, and may I say in, in, uh, in Natal recently, the flooding that we've seen there, and all the trauma that's associated with, us, with that. But deeper than that, I would go so far as to say every person in this room has experienced some level of trauma and suffering recently. I may even conclude that even right now there's some measure, because we're never really without suffering in this world, some measure that you are grappling with. And this is a conclusion that I've made theologically from this text that I believe will be a comfort to you. If you are surrendered to the will of God, God is in control of your life, even in that suffering, even in that trauma. Jesus had a particular course to run that included his death on our behalf, his death for us. And I'm glad to pronounce today that he ran it all the way. A course is run. Praise the Lord. Number two, a task is done. A task is done. It is finished, are the words in red letters in my Bible. It is finished. And it speaks of a task that is done. And my interrogation of the passage again was, what task was completed? In English, I'd like to ask a question of the little word, it. What is it? Now, in the Greek, it's one word. That little statement, it is finished, is one word. And it is pronounced tetelestai in the Greek. But what is so fascinating about this word is not necessarily the, the idea of something, a task being done, but also the tense in which that particular word was translated or, or preserved for us to translate. The tense would be translated this way from the Greek. It is finished, which is in your Bible. We could say this as well. It stands finished. Write this in the margin of your Bible, if you don't mind. It always will be finished. Isn't that amazing? It is finished. It stands finished. It always will be finished. So again, I want to ask the question, what? What is it that stands finished and is always finished? Well, the word is used in context. And I'm saying here context as in 2,000 years ago, this particular word, tetelestai, was used in various ways. Now, I invite... People that listen to me get excited about the Greek language. I invite them to take it devotionally as far as you want to go, okay? I don't want to be blamed for reading into a passage, but I also want to give you enough to just get excited about when you think of how words were used in their context. And this particular little word, tetelestai, was used in the context of servanthood, where servants would come to their master and they would make a report. And they would say to their master, tetelestai. The job is done. They were given certain tasks to do. They would go out in the morning. They would do the task, come back, report, and they would say the word. Tetelestai, job complete. It is finished. I like that. That's really the essence of what I'm trying to say in this point, in the sermon. Job done. But artists would also use the word. Artists. Those that were inclined toward writing beautiful pieces of language, like poetry. Those that were inclined toward painting beautiful pictures and the like, they would come at the end of their manuscript complete or their picture now done, they would come and declare to Telestai, look how beautiful. I like that. Because I think of Telestai as being a job completed, but it was a beautiful job, a manuscript, a masterpiece 
of a job completed when Jesus used this word. Potentially. You know something else amazing? Priests would have to examine sacrifices. And we know this from the narrative of the whole of our Bible. That sacrifices were only acceptable if they were without spot or without blemish. And so examination had to be done of these sacrifices. You know that priests during the time of Jesus would examine a sacrifice and then declare tetelestai. That warms my heart. To know that beyond just a job done, there was a beautiful masterpiece of a job done. But also there's hints in the word of, of sacrifice done that was beautiful and spotless and blemish-free, acceptable to the Lord. One more. Merchants would, would come and they would say, well, you know what? You, you've bought a lot from me. And you've racked up some kind of debt, and so you owe me some kind of money. And then those that owed the money would pay it off in drips and drabs, and eventually there would be a time, hopefully, where those that owed money could declare, it is done. And the one that was owed the money could say with one word, one statement, tetelestai, your debt is paid in full, and your demands, the demands of your debt have been paid and met. Like I said, take that devotionally as far as you want to go, but when I look at the word that Jesus carefully chose, his last words from the cross, when I look at the word, I get very excited about the kind of job, the kind of task that was completed by our Lord and our Savior. A job done that was a masterpiece, that was beautiful and spotless in the eyes of God and met his requirement, and in so doing, paid our debt, paid it in full. Again, you may ask, well, I want more. I want more, preacher. Tell me more of what was done on the cross 2,000 years ago. May I, may I suggest a few things? Those things that were finished when Jesus said it is finished. Persecution for Jesus was finished. Write these down real fast if you want. There's a whole lot of them. Persecution of Jesus was finished. You know why? The Bible says that wickedness will not prosper. Oh, there'll be seasons where the wicked will prosper. And we read scriptures of this where, you know, you look at the wicked and you say, wow, they're, they're looking so good, um, so sleek, and so, you know, they're like models in terms of their bodies and, and, and their wealth and their health and their prosperity and all of these things. But may I declare from scripture as well, the wicked will not prosper forever. Because there will be a day where persecution will come to an end. And for Jesus, you know, we wonder, looking at the events of Good Friday so long ago, we wonder, is it going to come to an end? The spitting and the fist punching and the, the, the mockery and the torture and the laughter. Is it going to come to an end? Well, when he said these words, it came to an end. Which is hopeful for us in our suffering. Number two, design of God was finished. God said there would be no way to save sinners other than for Jesus to die. And when Jesus asked, can this cup be taken from me? The answer of the Father, and this was an agreement made in ages past, the answer was, no, there can't be another way. There is no other way. The cup must be drank, and the cup must be drank to its last dregs. Every single drop must be drank, and that happened on the cross. And when Jesus said, it is finished, the design of God in terms of our salvation was complete. Another one, the prophecies of the Old Testament were finished. The Bible's predictions of fulfilled prophecy were completed and fulfilled perfectly 
as we look at our entire Bible all together today. The law, ceremonially, another one, was finished. Hence the curtain being torn from top to bottom. God involving himself to complete the ceremonial law. Jesus was the substance of all those incredible, detailed shadows of the Old Testament. And now that too was finished. Another one, sin was finished. Sin was finished. And I can't put it better than Hebrews 9.26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hallelujah. To put away sin. I don't know when last you wrestled with sin. I'm guessing in the last 24 hours, there was some measure of frustration with sin and its effect in your own life. What a joy it is to consider the scripture. What a hope to consider that sin itself comes to an end. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Another one, suffering was finished. Body suffering and soul suffering. I mean, last night we considered the, these are the words, the turmoil of Jesus when he was you know, on the cross and, and before the cross in the garden. These are some of the words we read. Trouble, sorrow, turmoil, like breakers and waves over Jesus. This is what we thought about last evening. That comes to an end. And if that comes to an end for Jesus, listen, listen to what the Bible is saying beneath the surface. It comes to an end for us too as believers. One day our suffering will also be finished. Here's another one. Jesus' life on this earth came to an end. His course came to the finish line. He crossed the finish line. You want some more? Satan was defeated and death was conquered and hell was overpowered and sin was beaten. Jesus' work on our behalf, we call that redemption, is all finished when Jesus declares, Tetelestai. That, my friends and family in the Lord, that is what Jesus finished when he said these words, it is finished. To make it personal, we had a penalty to pay. And that penalty is summed up in the Bible in one word, death, a death penalty. Jesus paid the penalty of our death for us. And according to what I understand theologically, God was satisfied with the payment. Tetelestai. It is done. It is finished. I'm satisfied. Hence, him declaring that's enough and bringing it to an end, he would raise Jesus from the dead. The task is done. The task is done. One more, and we'll be done. The victory is won. The victory is won. Oh, the course is run and the task is done, but the victory is also won. Reading this passage of your Bible, you might be one of those that gets miserable by the image that's painted here. Many have through the, through the ages. Many. They get miserable at the image of Jesus or their ideas of Jesus are too small. Pathetic is the best word to use. And your responses to Good Friday are shame. This is really a picture of Jesus' frailty in his human body. Jesus thirsty. And of course, knowing the humanity of Jesus, I guess this reaction is somewhat understandable. So they came along and they gave him something to drink. 
And then shame. That's what we say in South Africa, shame. He bowed his head and, and he, he gave up. That's your impression of the narrative that's given to us. And maybe um, that's been your picture of Good Friday through the years. Well, may I be the first to tell you, no, not exactly. That's not what took place here in the bowing of head and the taking of drink, as I understand it. Jesus thirsted, and we know this from his ministry and what he preached. He thirsted for something infinitely greater than a cheap drink handed to him on a stick. What would satisfy his thirst would not come through fluids. No, no, no. If he was to moan about something physical, think about it for a minute. He would have moaned throughout this process, not just at the end of the process. So, for example, when they spat on him, he would have said something like, Ew. That would have been his, his reaction. When they poked thorns in his head, he would have said, Hey, hold on, that's sore. When they took off his clothes, I'm sure he would have expressed some measure of embarrassment as you or I would have. When he was parched like he was, he would have said, I thirst, and that's your conclusion. Or when they drove nails through his hands, he would have said, ow! Those would have been his reactions to a simply human physical that was going on. And the moan in that situation. But there's more to this. There's way more to this. We know from Scripture that Jesus thirsted for the glory of God. We know that Jesus thirsted for the will of God to be done. This was what what he thirsted and hungered for and the only thing that would satisfy or the word that we use in English quench that thirst would be for the will of God to be accomplished the glory of God to be accomplished Jesus thirsted for the word of God to be fulfilled in fact thinking about theologically it was this thirst that drove him through the torture We think about the torture today. What was it that drove him through the torture? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that it was for the joy that was set before him, the the quenching of the thirst that he would now endure the cross, knowing that there was glory on the other side. We know that from Scripture. So then, of course, you're asking me, well, then what, what is all this cheap drink about? Why did Jesus actually take the drink? Because that bothered me for a season. Because before, he turned another drink away, remember? There was a mixed drink given to Jesus prior to this. And it was offered to to deaden the senses of those that were suffering on the cross. Jesus was not the only person that was hung on a cross. And so the tradition was that this mixed drink would be given to Jesus and any other that hung on the cross. And it was some old form of anesthetic to deaden senses so that the the suffering wouldn't be that bad approaching death so rapidly. That was the drink that Jesus turned down. You see, he was ready to pay the sacrifice in full. No shortcuts. No anesthetic. But now on this occasion, he takes a cup. And the only scripture that I can think of that would explain why he took the cup is Psalm 22. Mentioned it last night. It's very detailed. I'm quite embarrassed to say publicly I only discovered Psalm 22 when I was at university, when I was post-high post school. And somebody came to me, just a young adult, came to me and said, you know what, have you, ever, have you ever seen this passage before? Psalm 22? I said, no. It's about Jesus. I said, it can't be. I mean, it's Old Testament. <laughs> and, and, and then he went on to read it. And I was like, you've got to be kidding. I took his Bible and I had to look at the words. Because in that psalm, there is that, this language of his garments being torn and people standing around to gloat at him, look up at him. And then there's, 
piercing of hands and feet and all these details. Unmistakably Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. Then I discovered Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 and how they're well together and they speak of death, burial, and resurrection. That's a study for you in your own time. But one of the details in Psalm 22, which I believe um, speaks wholeheartedly about Christ, there is a detail there about his mouth. How that the, his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. You know, it would be impossible for Jesus to say anything unless his tongue was freed through some kind of fluid. That's what I believe took place on this occasion. Because Matthew 27 verse 50 said that Jesus cried out again in a loud voice. And I believe the loud voice was one word, tetelestai, his last word spoken. And after that, he yielded up his spirit. Friends, this is not defeat. This is not resignation. This is not shame. Jesus is giving up. This is a loud cry of victory from the cross. So then you might ask, well, why the head hanging in the giving up at the end of verse 30 or 30 to the end? Well, most according to history would stretch out their heads to take a breath. There's all these medical journals that have given articles about crucifixion, the effects on the human body and Most would have to pull on those wounds with the nails to to free their diaphragm a little bit, to take a breath, and they would gasp because ultimately people would die through crucifixion by suffocation. So so this language is opposite to what would be the norm. Jesus should be stretching out his neck to get a breath, but rather there's a bowing of the head, which to me is an obvious gesture that Jesus was willing to die, that he was prepared to die, He bowed his own head in the end. No one would take his life. This incorporated bowing under, no doubt, the weight of our own sin upon him. A big load to carry on our behalf. Think about your sin today. Your own contribution to the weight that Jesus had to carry. This submission, as I would like to call it, proved is proved by the last phrase in the text. He gave up his own spirit. You know, this is a unique phrase in the Bible. It's not used to describe human death anywhere else, but right here, in this context. And the emphasis of it, I believe, is Jesus giving up of his own spirit. You know why? Because he, at this moment, becomes priest Offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice at the same time for us. Listen to the scripture, Galatians 2.20. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us, this is the example, and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me. Can't take my life. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
This is not defeat. This is not giving up. Not downfall, quitting, abandoning hope. No, this is victory won. A peaceful victory. A peaceful death of trust and rest. And I thought, asking myself again, in what? Well, Sunday's coming. Resurrection is coming. A death of trust and rest in resurrection, I believe, that was to follow. Church family, because we are family, by the way, even though we're from two different places. We're one family. We spoke about adoption. We've spoken about it last night and today. This is good news for us. This is good news for us. Because we have lived, according to Scripture, an imperfect life, destined to pay the penalty of that life, which is no less than death. And I'm just going to say it. You deserve it. Maybe nobody else in this whole world has ever said that you deserve to die for your crimes. I want to be the first one. And then I'm going to just include myself. I deserve to pay it as well. An imperfect life deserves a death penalty according to God, and he's the judge. But the joy of this text, in the midst of the most tragic day of human history, righteousness crucified, the joy of this text is that rescue has come in Jesus. The course is run, the task is done, and the victory is won. The Bible would go on in its explanations of how we to respond to say that this work of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, has been offered to you. So my question of you on this Good Friday, 2022, is will you trust Jesus to save you? Will you? Or will you continue in your sin trying to save yourself? Because in my little life, I've realized that there's those options, really, the offer of Christ, and then those that were just continually blundering through life, just saying, well, I'm good enough, and I'll, I'll, I'll make it in the end. The, the good will outweigh the bad. I mean, God's a loving God. Surely he'll cut me some slack. Or worse, they'll continue to disbelieve in their need of salvation. I've met those individuals as well. Jesus, I don't need Jesus. Please, that's a, that's a story. It's a little church story that we'd like to enjoy once a year at Easter time. Or you continue to keep rejecting God because you feel like you can rule your life better than He can. Not prepared to submit. Not prepared to call Him Lord. Oh, you know the facts about Jesus. He's man, He's God, He died on the cross and He rose again. But I, I, don't, I, don't, want to, I don't want to surrender my life to Him. Because then I have to live according to what He says and I don't want to do that. Because I like my sin. So what's it going to be this, this morning? Trust in Jesus to save you or to continue in your own way. This Easter, my prayer for you has been to take the blame for your sin. Maybe this is the first time you've ever done it. To say, Lord, you know what? I'm to blame. Satan didn't make me do it. I'm to blame. Secondly, I want to turn from that, Lord, so I need your help in, in turning. We call this in big theological jargon, repentance. I want to turn from that sin, and I want to cling to you. That's important. I want to make you Lord. So I'm going to submit to you and hold fast to you as my Savior. This is my only hope in light of what I've heard this morning. And then thirdly, to trust Jesus. 
to depend on Him. More than just a factual belief, but an agreement with the facts and an embracing of Christ is what is required to be saved. And many in churches today go so far as to knowing all the facts. Tell me more about Jesus than I can. But never come to the place where they've really embraced Him. and said, you know what? I've got nothing else to hold on to, nothing else to trust. My wealth isn't going to save me. My, my good looks aren't going to save me. My, my good deeds aren't going to save me because it's quite, quite evident that I've, I'm to blame here. Today's the day that we need to put trust in Jesus. Won't you bow your head with me? I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I believe in Scripture there is a, a step that's needed that is courageous. And so today, elders and pastors, myself included, are going to be up front here after the service. And we want to talk to you. We are inviting you to come and talk to us about what God is doing in your life. But I, I might not get the opportunity to know about that. And so I would like you to, to do something courageous. Everyone's head should be bowed right now to make it easy, easier for those that are about to make a commitment. If you are that person, and your, your desire right now is to take the blame, turn from your sin, and trust Jesus. I want you to do something very simple, but courageous. I'd like you to raise your hand. I'm not going to call you to the front. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to know. Raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Is there anyone else? This Easter 2022, I want to make a commitment to take the blame for my sin, turn from my sin, and trust Jesus. Thank you for that bold step. I want to encourage you, if you've raised your hand this morning, to come and speak to somebody. Make this, make this a milestone in your life spiritually. I'd like to pray for you now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for explaining these things to us, Lord God. We love you. We appreciate all that you've done for us so much. We want to spend eternity singing about it. For those that have raised their hand this morning, the desire of their heart might be unique to them, but generally I pray, Lord, that you would empower these individuals to confess their sin by taking the blame for it, repent of their sin, which is to turn from sin and to put their faith in you alone for salvation. And may this day mark a day where they are reborn. So they no longer have to deal with the consequences of their first birth, which are to be separated from God and to live with guilt and to be God's enemy and to be enslaved to sin and death and hell and Satan, but rather now to be innocent and reconciled, your child, free. Oh, fill these individuals with that joy, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening so well.